Thanks, John. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with deep joy what you have to say to us this day. This we pray in the name of our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, I want to welcome those of you who are new to First Pres or have started worshiping with us recently. I know how hard it is to be the new person in a strange place. So for your bravery, I thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. You bless us with your presence. Alongside the hardship of being new, I also want to recognize how hard it can be to stay. Like any community, being part of a church isn't always easy. And so for those of you who are with us today, after years and decades of the good and the bad, the joy and the pain, the change and the even more change, for your bravery, thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. You bless us with your presence. One of my favorite questions to ask any churchgoer, whether they have been here for 30 minutes or 30 years, is how they found us. What brought you to our front door? Now, the most common answer to this question used to be that this church was recommended by a pastor or a family member or a close friend. No need to waste any time church shopping. Just take the word of someone you trust. But if someone is walking through our doors and sitting in our pews today, chances are that we have one person, or rather entity, to thank. Any guesses? Google. In that regard, the oh-so-literal and not-so-creative name of our church serves us quite well. Our name may not be very cool or hip, but guess what? It is comprised entirely of key words. If anyone is looking for a church in or near Berkeley that happens to be Presbyterian, well then no need to waste your time church shopping. We are the church for you. That is how it works, right? If you input a specific enough description into your search field and then click on the top result, you will have found yourself a perfect match, right? Well, not exactly. Gone are the days when every part of our identity does not have to be qualified somehow. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm Christian, but not that kind of Christian. I go to church, but not those type of churches. I'm a member of the PCUSA, not PCA or EPC or ECO. Yes, our name says it all. We are the first Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. But what does that even mean anymore? Well, let's start with the Presbyterian part. We may not always say as much, but our confessions and our governance, and yes, our worship, is guided by our Reformed tradition. 
Everything we are doing right now, from the call to worship to the benediction, is not the result of coincidence or chance. Each part is grounded and scriptured and tethered to tradition, but also open to transformation. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. The church reformed, always reforming. A beautiful concept when said in Latin, but an exhausting reality when put into practice. I mean, who actually likes constant change? I don't. You might find this hard to believe, but I actually prefer stability and consistency and predictability and control. But unfortunately, God never promised us any of those things. Jesus never promised us any of those things. What God did promise us in Jesus Christ is that the one thing that would never change is the only thing that truly matters, and it's this. God loves us. There's nothing we can do to earn that love or lose it because it isn't about us. It's about God. That is the constant. And that also happens to be extremely Presbyterian. Because as Presbyterians, we believe that nothing we do here in worship or in the church or even in the world makes us worthy of God's favor or salvation. Contrary to how everything works out there in the real world, as Presbyterians, we believe that there is no amount of right action or belief or practice that makes us right before God. Only Jesus can do that. And only Jesus has done that. Which kind of begs the question, what are we even doing here in the first place? If none of this scores us any points with God, then why show up? Well, the answer is quite simple. This is what we were created to do to sit beside people who are different than us and the same, to join our voices with strangers and with friends, to worship, to give thanks, to cry out to the one who created us, the one who loves us, the one who abides with us. In life and in death, sorrow and joy, in good times and in bad, what else can we do but worship? And so whether you are new to this place or a longtime member, whether you found us on Google or the Yellow Pages, whether this feels like home to you or something scary and new, my hope is that today you are transformed by the love of God. So here now, my beloved, for the fourth and yes, final time, a reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is It was touching him, that she is a sinner. Then Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the past few weeks, we as a congregation have been going beyond the routine of worship and exploring the meaning and the purpose. Why do we pray together, sing together, confess together in worship? Why do we continue to honor tradition after all these years? Why do we do the things the way we do them? We started with the opening movements of the service from the call to worship to the confessional sequence. And last week we talked about the hymns and psalms and songs that bind each section together. And today we find ourselves in the middle of the service, the part where the the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed. So the part that's happening right now. Just like with every other section, the church has varied in its understanding of how to practice this one. Asking itself questions like, how many biblical readings are necessary? Should we read straight through the Bible or hop around with the lectionary? If we can all read the Bible ourselves, why do we even need a sermon? If we have a sermon, how long should it be? What is their function? Should they guide and instruct existing believers or inspire and mold prospective believers? Is the preacher supposed to encourage and comfort or challenge and disrupt? What kind of a person would sign up for this gig in the first place? As always, so many questions with even more possible answers, leaving us to wonder, what does the Bible have to say about all of this? Well, in the Old Testament, Nehemiah 8 shows us how Ezra, a priest and a scribe, gathered the people of Israel together to perform this very thing. After being in exile, he and the elders of the community created a wooden platform for Ezra to stand on, very biblical, convened an assembly and stood together as Ezra read the book of the law or the scriptures. After a section of the law was read, someone studied in the law would then interpret it for the people and the people would respond with an amen. The scriptures read 
and the word proclaimed. In the New Testament, the gospels show us Jesus doing the exact same thing. At a synagogue in Nazareth and with the crowds he encountered along his journeys, using scripture to interpret scripture, Jesus followed the model of rabbis before him, reading the text and then interpreting, contextualizing, challenging, comforting, and ultimately preaching the good news of the gospel. The scriptures read and the word proclaimed. Now, those are pretty straightforward examples of how this part of worship looks like, a paint-by-numbers, if you will. But our passage for today from Luke is a little more abstract. Over the past few weeks, we have identified the various parts of worship in this single passage. The call to worship was the woman finding out where Jesus was and then going to see him. The confession, assurance, and pardon was the woman showing up just as she was with her sin, and as a result, being able to receive forgiveness and peace from Jesus. Then last week, we talked about how the hymns and the songs that we sing in worship are like the tears and the oil the woman brought for Jesus, humble offerings for a mighty God. But what about today? Where exactly are the scriptures read and the word proclaimed? Well, just like our order of worship, we find these elements smack dab in the middle of this story. Right after the opening drama, complete with the party crashing and the weeping and the washing of feet, we see how the room suddenly gets quiet and the vibe drastically changes. Presumably the woman is still on the scene washing Jesus' feet, but now the focus is squarely on Simon. Simon, Jesus says, I want to talk to you. To which Simon replies, teacher, speak. Now what happens next is just awesome. It reminds me of the scene from the television show, Ted Lasso where the humble Coach Lasso goes toe-to-toe with the pompous Rupert Mannion. In this scene, Rupert, intent on humiliation, challenges Ted to a game of darts, certain he has accurately clocked his opponent and is guaranteed a win. And that seems to be the case for Rupert until the very end when in his typical unassuming fashion, Ted launches into a rambling story about some quote he once read while dropping his son off at school. It said, be curious, not judgmental. In between throwing three perfectly aimed darts, Ted goes on to talk about how that quote made him look back on all the people in his life who judged him or underestimated him, thinking that they had it all figured out. But they didn't, of course, because no one has it all figured out. No one. And if they had been curious instead of judgmental, well, then they would have asked questions, questions like, Have you played a lot of darts, Ted? (laughs) To which Ted would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 until I was 16 when he passed away. Bullseye. 
I think Jesus would agree with Ted Lasso. Because right after Simon makes a judgment about Jesus and the woman from the city, Jesus invites him into a conversation. And instead of meeting one judgment with another, Jesus begins to tell a story, a human story, about two people with two very different sized debts, one big and one small. But what they do have in common is that both are unable to repay their debt. Now here comes the boom. Because when the creditor realizes this, he does the unthinkable and cancels the debt for both of them. Just like that. Bullseye. I imagine that when Jesus initially opened his mouth, Simon, Simon was expecting, maybe even hoping, to go toe-to-toe with the rabbi on the specifics of the law. I imagine that was one of the reasons he invited him over in the first place, a chance to debate with a rising star about how best to be observant, how to be righteous, how to be worthy in the eyes of God. That was the game Simon wanted to play, but Jesus was not biting. Instead, he tells a child's story followed, by the, followed with the easiest, most basic, anyone could get the answer right question. Now, which one, Simon, which one of these two debtors who could not repay their debts loved the creditor who forgave both of their debts more? Which one of the debtors loved their creditor more? Which one loved more? Well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt, Simon answered, to which Jesus said, you have judged rightly. The scriptures read and the word proclaimed. The word of God spoken and the gospel preached, the word made flesh and good news declared. That simple. Try as we might to make this all more complicated than it is, and we try pretty hard. This section of our worship, this part of our lives is actually pretty simple. Because if we actually believe that the Bible is the word of God and that God is love, well then love is the key to understanding every obscure and confusing and even problematic part of this book. Anytime we make it about anything other than that, anytime we make it about anything more than that, we are missing the point. That is what Jesus shows us in Luke 7. After all, time and time again in scripture, it is Jesus who confounds the religious. Jesus who stumps the learned. Jesus who simplifies the law down to its most basic function, its most essential purpose, its most consistent teaching, and that is love. Every book and chapter, every verse and story, every line and letter, instruction and law, commandment and judgment ultimately comes down to love. God's love for creation, God's love for humanity, God's love for us, and our call to share that very love with a world in need. And every time the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed, we cannot resist being changed. We cannot help but be transformed. See, every time we show up for worship and go through these sacred motions, watch out. 
because God is doing something in our midst. The question is, are we willing to be changed? Are we open to be transformed? I will say this about Simon. He stayed. He could have shut the door on the woman's face or kicked her and Jesus out of his home. He could have gotten up from the table and left, but he stayed. He listened to the story. He answered Jesus's question. And I am certain that as a result, he was never the same. After encountering Jesus, no one ever is. Here's the thing. We don't believe in change for change's sake. We don't believe in reformation for the sake of reform. We believe that when God is here, that when we confess our sins and sing our praise, when we read the Bible with ears to hear and eyes to see and proclaim the good news of the gospel, that there is no way that we can actually stay the same. Each time we are transformed, each time we are reformed, each time we are made new. But just because we believe in ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, that does not believe that we meet, that, that does not mean that we believe that God changes or that scripture does, not at all. What it does mean is that we recognize we are in a real life relationship with the living word of God. One that will continue to make us even more loving, more generous, more compassionate, and more faithful. For God's word does not come back to God empty or void, but always fulfills its purpose according to God's will. And that will is love. A reality, a reformation, a transformation I have seen embodied right here at First Press just this past week. This past Monday, after months and months of meeting with partners from our local community, First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, in partnership with the city and the university and the Village of Love, opened the doors of our Sacred Rest Drop-In Center, a space on our church campus where our unhoused neighbors can come and find the rest, food, and services they need and deserve. This is how we are being guided by scripture and inspired by, by love. That is how we are Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. And then this past Tuesday, after years and years of this church faithfully wrestling through its own painful and challenging journey, on the issue of same-sex marriage. This past Tuesday, the session of the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley unanimously voted on a motion to joyously welcome the celebration of same-sex weddings on our campus, finally removing the one barrier that kept our LGBTQ members and siblings from fully enjoying and participating in the life of this church. That is how we are being guided by scripture and inspired by love, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. Now, I know depending on who you ask, the church has not reformed enough or we have reformed too much or that the change has been too fast or it has not been fast enough. I get it. And to all of you, again, who have stayed, who have waited, 
patiently and faithfully, even at the expense of your own dignity. Those of you who have wrestled diligently and compassionately, even at the expense of your beliefs, to all of you who have been inspired by scripture and guided by love, I want to thank you. You have changed this church. You have transformed this community. You have changed me. You have transformed me. And so to all of you, no matter how you found us, who you are, how long you have been here, or why you have stayed, let me just say this. More than we are Presbyterian, we are a church. We are a community of believers, a family of faith, a ragtag group of imperfect people who have experienced and encountered and been transformed by the love of God in Jesus Christ. That is what we put first. That is what matters most to us. And that is who we are now, who we have been, and who we will always be. Amen.